we can't, we can't, we're not doing a whole podcast Wait, no, I, about subtitles. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's what, yeah. You can always cut it down. We're having a conversation about the conversation. Reads on Film Podcast. Reads on Film Podcast. Reads on Film Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reads on Film. Another episode. Uh, this week, we've just all been to see a brand new film called The Boy and the Heron. And we're going to be sharing our thoughts with you, sort of giving a review, things we liked, things we didn't like, our interpretations. I suppose, where are we going to kick off? I think our idea was to kind of go around and share our initial thoughts on the film, take it in turns to kind of say what we thought. So uh, why don't you start, Theo, as I'm looking at you? Do you want to give us your your overall appreciation of the film? Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was visually visually stunning, uh, an instant classic in my opinion. Um, yeah, I loved the film. Nathan? Uh, I liked the film. I think my initial impression was that it definitely wasn't a perfect film, and compared to some of Miyazaki's like, earlier works, or like previous works at least, I thought it was good, but I didn't think it was perfect, and I, I think it was definitely flawed. I think it had pace, some pacing issues. I don't want to be too negative about it because I think there's a lot of good in there. And yeah, I guess we'll go more into depth about that. Dad? Uh, Dad. Yeah, I thought it was a, a, a great film. I was actually pretty much blown away by, by it. Um, it's a film for me that was so m- rich with meaning. We talked a lot before about um, Spirited Away, which many people consider uh, Miyazaki's greatest film. But I thought this was up there with that, actually. Ooh. Nice. <laughs> So back to me, I think already over the course of the last few days since we went to see it, it's it's starting to find form. It's definitely a grower. Yeah. When I was watching it at the time, there were a few things where I was like, oh, what's that? Or mm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But now I've sort of got it in my head. I just watched the trailer um, before we started this episode. And already I was like, wow, I forgot how good this is, how amazing it looked. There's so much about it, I think, to discuss and... Um, reflect on uh, as we're about to do um, so yeah excited excited to, to talk through it now yeah so I think after we've all got our initial thoughts let's kind of give an overall summary I suppose of the film what takes place in some description spoiler uh, alert yeah oh, oh yeah we should caveat of course this episode will be rife with spoilers teeming with spoilers we'll be discussing plot details and all of the other things that happen in it and our thoughts on that so if you haven't seen the film definitely go and watch it i know there are some parts of the country where it's hard to see but get yourself down whether it's the exeter cine world or the east yorkshire odeon just do what you have to do to, to get get to that cinema and see it if you it's, can. De- it's worth seeing in the cinema as well i think yeah 100 um, percent. definitely want to see on the big screen uh but yeah let's let's talk through the summary dad Right, yeah, I'll have a go at that. So, right, well, it's. I think it's important to start off by saying there are clear bio, uh, biographical themes in this film, and it opens in the midst of, well, what from our perspective would be the Second World War. I think the Japanese, I don't know whether they would call it the Sino-Japanese War, but it opens in Tokyo um, with a schoolboy around 10, 12 years old, Mahito, 
um, and he's alerted there's alarm because there's a fire broken out. It's not clear whether it's a fire due to bombing, but his mum's in hospital and it opens with this amazing piece of animation where he rushes towards the hospital to try and save his mother. His mother dies and then we move to another scene where he's actually leaving Tokyo with his father to move to the countryside. His father, it seems, has married his mother's um, younger sister, who is pregnant. Um, Mahito is angry. He is grieving for his mother, and he's very unhappy about being taken away from Tokyo. Finds it really hard to settle into school. He's isolated, gets into a fight, and then there's this um, episode where he hits himself on the head with a rock, which is really quite striking, a piece of self-harm. Whilst he's struggling to adjust, there are these sort of interventions by a heron which turns up out of the blue, this grey heron, which everybody knows about in the countryside. But this heron starts speaking to Mahito and starts taunting him, telling him that he knows where his mother is and that his mother is alive. On one day... Um, Mahito's new mother, her name is Natsuko, who's pregnant, she disappears into the woods, everybody's looking for her. Um, Mahito goes in search and finds a tower. The heron appears and says to him in quite um, portentous tones, your presence is requested. Um, Mahito, I think, feels that this is a lie, feels that the um, Heron is taunting him but follows him and then we are brought into this new world a sort of surreal fantasy world to me it seemed like a scene from The Wizard of Oz others have talked about Alice through the looking glass but we're in this world where we meet lots of strange creatures um, giant psychopathic parakeets pelicans Lots of strange animals, but also these new characters, many of which seem to have parallels with figures from Mahito's natural world. So we see a version of his dead mother, um, his aunt. Um, but then finally, and I think really importantly, we meet this figure who is his great uncle, who has been talked about before as this fairly obsessive character who is very interested in books, has a great book collection, um, but had disappeared. I think it's also worth noting that the uncle was the one who beckoned him into that world as well. Along with the heron. Yeah, but yeah. I, I feel like the, the heron was an agent of his A uncle, messenger, right? yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, And it, it does seem as though his great uncle is looking for a successor, and perhaps Mahito is the person who could take on that role. And I think from there... You know, uh, this film opens up into many other themes. There are lots of meanings, which I guess we're going to move on to discuss. Mm, definitely. Uh, before we do that, we should also maybe briefly mention our viewing experience. So we all went to see this together. Shout out to West Norwood Picture House uh, for hosting us. An excellent cinema for those of you in South London. Um, we obviously went to the dubbed version. I don't know if that was a deliberate choice or whether we didn't have an option. I can't. Well, there, was a, there was a big discussion. There the was a bit before. of a debate beforehand, um, um, and I think we decided on the dub because 
to, I, I, I think I read somewhere that Miyazaki said, see it in your native language, which I, I, I guess we have a further discussion about this. Mm. But obviously when looking at subs and dubs, one of the main, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's always, it's often been the case that people recommend seeing things in, in uh, subtitles because you lose an essence of the original voice actors or the original actors if it's a non-animated film. But I, I think one issue with seeing something with subtitles is you are distracted from the image at the end of the day. Like, as, uh, you, as much as you can take both in, like, you're going to be... There's a certain amount of attention you do need to put on, like, actually reading the subtitles, especially when mm. seeing it, I think, on a big screen in the cinema. The other thing is, with Ghibli films, um, they're, a lot of money goes into doing the dubbing. Obviously, they're quite big productions. Um, and I think, historically, the general consensus is that Ghibli films are relatively well dubbed so I think that's why we decided on doing it and I have to say I think dad agrees with me on this afterwards after seeing it in dubbed I I did somewhat reconsider that uh, position and I think there were moments at which it did feel a little bit awkward I think obviously if you're doing the English if you have English dubs over a Japanese language film there's going to be moments where there are gaps lines have to be made to fit so you get sometimes these awkward moments where it feels like a dialogue actually hasn't finished or like the animation goes on a bit longer than the dialogue uh, is kind of going on. Um, and I think overall the dubbing was, was of good quality and I think generally the voice actors did a pretty good job. You had some like huge names in there. But yeah, I don't know. So dad, you also saw the yeah, so sub. So. I've been to see it twice. So I yeah. went to see it with you, the dub version first of all. I've always watched... Miyazaki's films with subtitles so it was interesting to hear it with basically American actors and as you said they had some big names Mark Hamill, Robert Pattinson, um, William Dafoe, Christian and Bale. Christian Bale. I did, did you notice cast. did you were you when you were watching it did you hear any of those people so I knew I knew Will, Willem Dafoe was in it mm. and I, I thought no. but I wasn't thinking about him and none of the other people there were some that I didn't so the dad his his accent was a bit. It was like English. I'm assuming yeah. the dad was Robert Pattinson, was it? I think, no, I think well, that was Christian Bale, which I think was. was yeah. I think that's why he had that and bit of an English. That kind of, he's he got a funny accent. Yeah. Yeah. and that that put me off. That was the yeah. only time when I was taken out of the out of it because of that. But there were some points where it feels a little. It felt a little bit like too. I can't remember who which part it was in particular, but it was like it felt a little bit too American and a little bit too like there was a kind of cultural. Uh, like conflict there in the kind of American voice with like a Japanese something that is like quite intrinsically Japanese I just felt it to me it came across as more as if I was watching a cartoon film if you like rather than anime just in terms of the expression of their voices the tone of their voices mm. whereas when I went to see it with the subtitles I don't, I, I don't think the subtitles actually distract me from what's going on from the screen but I really felt that I appreciated the film more the tone you know you had the Japanese tonal language it just seemed to make more sense and fit with the well, images I, yeah I guess because there are like non-serious parts in the film right there are lots of quite goofy moments as there often are sure. in, in Ghibli films like the parakeets the, par like goofy the parakeets I mean and the heron so the heron was actually Robert Pattinson yeah and the heron character was quite like obviously you had and that was part of the characters that you had when he was the heron was this uh, quite mysterious, quite uh, like terrifying in, in a way, like creature. 
Um, and then when it became this kind of human, when he found out there was a human inside it, or there was like this humanoid kind of gnome man with a big nose, uh, it was almost slightly goofy and that like fear factor was like pull, pulled away. I, I, I don't know, I think maybe when, when that's like translated to English, it, it, that sort of weird, goofy Japanese humour, it, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite oh, work and it feels no, slightly yeah. odd and, and, and a little bit um, naff. Yeah. The only other thing I think in favour of the dubbing is sometimes the content varies in terms of what you're hearing in the scripts, in the language versus what is what is subtitled. And I remember this from when we went to see Metropolis, which was hosted by Gi- the Ghibliotech podcast guys in the IMAX. Because mm. I, I obviously watched Metropolis ver- from a very young age in the in the dubbed version. And I think there are specific lines and passages that I recall that don't make it into the into the into the subtitles and some of it can be like if it's someone giving a speech or a monologue that in the case of metropolis be quite poetic and profound a lot of that is lost in a very quick rough or direct translation in in the subtitles so i mean that's not to say that's not a reason in favor of the dub it's just i would be interested to compare the the language used in the sub versus the dub and see if there are discrepancies and in meaning and things. That's the 2000 Metropolis one, right? Not yeah. The, not the 1927. No, that's not an anime. No. I, yeah, just, so, yeah. It's not a very... Just saying about the... Uh, again, maybe it's a bit off, off topic, but in, in the IMAX, because I, I saw that, I saw Metropolis and Ghosts in the Shell both uh, over the summer in the, in the BFI IMAX. And obviously it's a huge screen. I did find the, my one complaint with that was I having to see this look at the subtitles. I did actually have to move my eyes mm. because they they were at the bottom yeah. of the screen, and you're looking at the center. We had, we had very good seats, quite quite close to the center of the cinema, um, and yeah, you have to actually physically move your eyes to like see the subtitles, which does at the end of the day it does draw you yeah. away from the beautiful imagery. And how quick a reader you are. What's that? Like, yeah, Dan and Theo are very quick readers. Yeah. Just bang, bang, bang. On there, like, Whereas mouthing I'm... the words out. Yeah. <laughs> like... yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, we should move on from the sub-dub discussion. Yeah. I say, I'm, I was actually pleasantly surprised by the dubs. I normally watch everything in subs, but I thought the dub, it was dubbed quite well. In yeah. The Boy and the Heron. I was, I thought yeah. Quite, I... Um, even though it was quite, like, play, like I think you said, Dad, quite cartoonish maybe not as serious i thought it was it fit the tone of the film okay so maybe nathan just needs to improve on his literary skills (laughs) we're not ending the segment with that we can't end the segment with with that with that diss so i i'd say i think see it in both I think that's a, I think that's a good conclusion. Yeah, yeah. there's value to be gained from both the subtitles and the dubs. I always the think see it in both. The dubs are good. Cool. Good. Wow. Um, after that riveting discussion on subtitles, let's uh, talk about I suppose well what I've sort of tongue in cheekly named our grand unifying theories. What is this film about? We've talked a little bit about the summary. But does anyone who wants to open the discussion with the with the who wants to stake out a big claim? Theo, do you want to start? Theo, sure. Um, um, please, t- I think, t- tell us. So Dan, you've already alluded to this, but in saying that the film is somewhat autobiographical, um, and I think that is a uh, something that definitely comes through in the film. You have Mahito, who is this adventurous young boy 
who uses his creativity to deal with his problems, such as when he uh, created the bow. If you look at Miyazaki's own life, he his father uh, built or helped to repair, I think it was repair planes during the war. Or he worked on did, planes. Did he make plane parts? Or? Yeah, made or plane yeah. parts during yeah. World War II. Yeah. And his mother was constantly or often ill during the war and I think hospitalised for large parts of it. And then they moved out into the countryside during the war. So there are definitely clear parallels between Miyazaki's life as a kid during the war and uh, Mahito's, or Mahito's rather. Um, but then, so I guess there's also parallels can be drawn between the old man or I guess, so the old man in the tower and Miyazaki himself as this big creator of a lot of Ghibli films, this kind of controller of the art form. But I would actually say, well, so one of the producers of the film stated that um, so when Miyazaki wanted to make the film, he actually asked permission to make this film autobiographical. And one of the producers, he said that he explicitly stated, so this was Toshio Suzuki, he said that Miyazaki is Mahito, Takahata, who is the other producer who actually died during the film, mm. during the making of the film, mm. is the great uncle, which is the old man. And the grey heron is me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, who said that? I did hear that, that? Well. One of the So producers. that was one of the producers. So when did he say that? Um, he said that in the lead up to the oh. main... Throw my notes out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 no, but I don't yeah. think there's one interpretation yeah. of the film. I mean, yeah. Miyazaki... Also, that's his... Because he, yeah, he's exactly. the only one who does like the mar- the marketing and does interviews, I think. Like, Miyazaki yeah. hasn't done so, any kind so of he said, so publicity. So his... In the way he put it was that Miyazaki wasn't was the kid and not the uncle. Well, that's the just creator of the film. Yeah, that's what that's, one of the producers okay. is. But then Miyazaki did say that perhaps you didn't understand it. I don't even understand it. About exactly, and that's a good point. I mean, yeah. even you know, if Miyazaki was to give us an interpretation, doesn't mean it's the interpretation you should take away. Because when I started, I was thinking of the great uncle as being Miyazaki, mm. as Theo says this sort of creative figure and he reminds me actually a bit of uh, Prospero from The Tempest sort of adrift on this island coming up with these strange sort of ideas and models of world building but then and I think this was actually after seeing it the second time with the subtitles I saw him as more as the um, heron actually the character inside the heron drawing us into this imaginary Mm. world and that makes sense to me. I think it makes sense mm-hmm. to me that he's all, he's like, he, he's as God, he's like, it's the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Heron, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, that is, like, he's the creator of the world. He's also your kind of spiritual trickster guide who takes yeah. you through. But also he is the first person, he's the discoverer the, of this world. The, the boy. The innocent boy um, transgressing it or moving through it. Yeah, I mean, it, for me, it's hard to see the uncle, the great uncle is not the great, if we start calling him the great uncle for Right, he's un- great uncle, isn't he? Because yeah. he's yeah. his, his mum's uncle. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. S- s- um, just to not see him in some part as a mi- uh, uh, projection of Miyazaki and his work. I mean, when you just take into account, and we'll talk about this, like the greater sort of themes of the film, he's definitely uh, uh, 
and infused the film with some some ideas of legacy and him trying to hand on his his body of work that he's like developed through his entire life uh we see echoes of his previous films throughout boy and the heron a bit like uh, if i just interrupt nathan a bit like we were talking about inland in empire exactly, dave yeah. lynch you know he's coming to well possibly the end of his career and bringing all these themes but also even characters and motifs from yeah. his previous work into this film definitely and we were I mean, talking we, about um what we're talking about miyazaki wanting to pass on his um the art form and to his children and his yeah. kid making what was it uh, uh goro tales from earth sea tales from earth sea so his, so- his son very disappointing yes to miyazaki yeah his son was meant who was meant to be his like great protege he made Tales of Earthsea and there's like a famous clip from I think a documentary on Miyazaki where he goes and watches this new film from his son um, and he leaves the cinema halfway through and this uh, the kind of film crew come and catch up with him and he's sat outside smoking a cigarette and he's like this is not how you make films mm. and, and yeah. Um, yeah I do remember seeing that I mean I didn't know any of that background but I remember seeing Tales from Earthsea and being like it's boring <laughs> you say this is not how you make films <laughs> Raid some film podcast hi Callum here hope you're enjoying the podcast so far just like to give a little shout out to a review which is currently sitting on our substack another studio Ghibli film if you're interested in that sort of thing please go and check it out it's called Grave of the Fireflies well worth a watch well worth a read read some film so if we're to take Miyazaki as the great uncle and obviously to talk specifically about what happened and in terms of legacy, there's obviously this scene where he meets Mahito and he's got these building blocks um, which he's trying to stack on top of each other to create this perfect balance and some of them are infused with malice. So I just, I, I suppose my question on that is where, do, where what's the logical conclusion of this this film in terms of how he's wrestling with that legacy and ha- and how he's planning to pass on the world because obviously he doesn't really pass it on does he Mahito says no thanks uh, I'm going home but that I mean that's the thing I mean it, uh, that's I thought that was really clever the way um, Miyazaki did that because those blocks look to me like the um, platonic sort of ideals you know we talk about Plato and he had has this world where you have ideal forms and that is what I think the great uncle is trying to create this world of perfection. And I think there's a, almost like some self-criticism going on there for Miyazaki, looking back over his body of work, that he has created these beautiful worlds, these fantasy worlds in his animation. Um, but this talk telling us, if you like, the viewers, not to forget the messy world outside, which will always have bits of malice good and evil so do you think it could be a self-criticism of his own work and that he's not had enough conflict he's not uh displayed enough conflict in his work or they've been too much wrapped up in the kind of beauty and i wouldn't say that because although you know as people have often commented with his previous films there's no uh, you know, you don't necessarily have heroes and villains. You don't, you know, people are a bit more um, nuanced, which I think is a good thing. But I think it's almost a warning, particularly at the time we're living in at the moment, that people might, and this might be his view, that people are trying to escape into his fantasy world where it's a world of the perfect rather than dealing the 
with the messy world we're living in at the moment. And, you know, um, Mahito, he comes in and says, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. And then you have this, the, para the parakeet king, who's almost like this, um, I hesitate to bring him into the podcast, but almost like a sort of Trump-like figure um, yeah. who is desperate to wrest control yeah. and take over this world. Um, but it, by doing so, he destroys it. Yeah. Also, interestingly, voice acted by uh, Dave Batista, who is in Guardians of the Galaxy, so maybe he's a sort of Marvel Studios mm -hmm. type figure um, <laughs> trying to wrestle corporate control. <laughs> ten years, but ten, no, maybe a bit ten years. possible. Yeah, I didn't see the Parakeet King as such a like villainous character. I thought. In terms of what he was trying to do was use this, uh, well, he was trying to negotiate with the old man, with the great uncle, just to try and get, get things for his people or for the world that the parakeets were living in. Hmm. And he was using Hemi as this kind of bargaining chip for political power, I guess. But it was more a reflection of reality and how our world uh, works. Mm. absolutely and i think that's a really important point I, because i see the parakeets the giant parakeets in this surreal world are interesting when they come into the real world turn into small beautiful gentle parakeets but at the start when we first see them we're struck by how violent they are they're threatening with knives and i do wonder whether they're meant to represent well humanity in this other world but i wonder if now would be a good point to talk about the parallels between that world and the real world, particularly in terms of the characters that we come across. And how they, tra they transform from the... I mean, uh, very quickly, on, still on birds, we had those uh, pel pelicans earlier on. That, and they were... They eat, so they, they ha you have this whole scene with the... Wariwari? Wariwari. Yeah. Do you want to say what they were, Nathan? So, so they were kind of these... Well, I mean, we find so initially we see them and they're these kind of like fluffy, bubbly little, you're kind of like minion archetype mm. sort of figures that like funny characters. Um, and we later find out when they cut that they do this kind of rising up where they rise up into the sky. And one of the characters tells us that these wary wary are soon to become humans, and then rising up is them going to be born into the real world. Um, and then there's this scene where the these uh, pelicans come in and start eating the wari wari, and then the pelicans are kind of torched by um, the the mother, right? Hemi. Hemi. Version of the mother. Yeah, and then we have this great scene with the old pelican, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think it was something along the lines of uh, we we were born into this world of great evil, um, and we just to eat these just to eat these wari wari. And I, I don't know, I don't really know what to take from that. But for me, it was kind of, that kind of hits at that, that idea of the kind of chaotic nature of the world and yeah. the some of the intrinsic, you know, the, the intrinsic malice and evil that is present. In yeah, well, I think it speaks to what Theo was saying, right, about seeing the parakeets not as in, there's, there aren't really any innate, like, antagonistic evil figures by nature. Most of the kind of malice as you said as as is mentioned in the film it is infused into the stones in the same way it's sort of infused into these um characters or creatures through the world it's sort of manifested as a result of the way of the world rather than it being like there are these 
creatures which are themselves doing evil. Evil becomes a kind of not nece- not a necessary product, but almost a, an unfortunate byproduct of the, this creation. It's and again, I think it speaks back to that idea of legacy and creating and it passing on a perfect legacy. It's it's almost impossible to create a world without malice and create a world without. Um, without these kind of fractures in it and again maybe that speaks to going back to when we've done a bit of a wide tangent here but back to what you're saying about the parallels between characters across the world and also themes right something we haven't mentioned so far is the war that's going on in the background and how important that that is to mojito's mojito's father and um all the things that are going on in in japan at that time Mm. yeah importantly because as um well there's a, a Uh, quite a critical line in the film where um, Mahito's father, who is a designer of planes, um, he brings him to the factory, they're looking at the work and they're talking about the struggle because people having to go to fight in the war, would they have enough of a workforce? And his father actually makes the comment that business is booming because of the war, because of his uh, uh, because of his need to produce more planes, which I think you know, given, as you were saying earlier, Theo, about how um, Miyazaki's father was a plane designer in the war, I mean, it could be seen as a real, really quite severe criticism of his father's role in the war. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting throughout, especially in the early, in the first sort of opening third of the film, how well the war is kind of incorporated not obviously there's the overt scene with the fire and the and the bombing but also you know when they turn up into the village with the rations and you have all those old women who are fussing over it there's that scene when they're sort of going through in the cart and these and that kind of like procession of i don't know if they're war veterans or people that are somehow involved in the war effort pass and they get off and they kind of stand and bow and it's like this interesting um way that um the war is kind of infused in every aspect of society which again i don't know perhaps is paralleling that kind of infusion of malice throughout the world of the fantasy we'll see in the second half of the film. Yeah, I find the idea of the fire um, is quite an important uh, like element in the film. It comes up time and time again. We see it kill. Well, it firstly it kills the mom in the hospital fire, um, but then we see fire being used by Himi to protect the Wara Wara from the yeah. pelicans. Um, and Himi, of course, is her, is. And we he, find out yeah, his mother is in a younger form. Of the mother. Um, and then I think there's a line towards the end of the film where when they're going back into their respective worlds and um, uh, Maito is saying, oh, but you'll if you go back to your world, you'll die in this hospital fire. And Hemi is, says something like, oh, but I'm not afraid of fire. Um, and I think there's something... It's. I think fire here is an important metaphor, maybe for. I was thinking it could be like the um, creativity or the passion behind um, f- the filmmaking. Going back to this meta look at the film, how I think you were saying, Callum, about how uh, it could be something about producers and like greedy producers. I know you were talking about Marvel. Um, <laughs> like ruining film or maybe ruining this so get and i think you were saying nathan about the wara wara being this kind of this is like the purest form of art form and then you have the pelicans who are 
there's almost a sadness about the pelicans in the way that they're like, oh, but we have to eat the wara wara because mm. we have no other prey. The necessary life and death process yeah. almost. In, so you in can a way. see them as almost like these producers that kind of they're feeding off these ideas. The pelicans. Yeah. Yeah. They're feeding off these ideas because yeah. that's they have to feed off these ideas, and it's kind of ruining these ideas and damaging the art form, the purity mm. of it. And perhaps that's being protected by the fire. But there's also a creative aspect to fire. Like people, is that what you're saying? Or like fire is a destructive and a creative force. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking about the fire, though, I think something we haven't really talked about so far, but we really should, is the quality of the animation in this film. Mm -hmm. I mean, when it opens and we have this firestorm going on in Tokyo. I mean, it, well, it pretty much blew me away the way they managed to film that. There was the scene where um, Mahito is running towards the hospital. And in fact, it reminds me of the time-lapse scenes from Chunking Express. He, yeah. You see him clearly running and then you have all these, I don't know, sort of unformed characters moving around him in slow motion. Um, I've no idea how one would animate that but it was really impressive and then as is often the case with uh, Miyazaki's films you have these different forms of animation throughout uh, uh, those um, the um, I can't remember whether they were serving women in the house when they moved to the countryside they're sort of like quite cartoonish okay. almost grotesque mm -hmm. figures yeah. um, sort of comical um, but really quite lovable in the way, way they kind of move, they sort of move around in this herd. And yeah. when you first see them, mm. and there's like, there's such a character to the way they move. Yeah, I thought uh, they reminded me of. I think there were. Se I'll have to check this because I've yeah. seen it once. But I think there were seven of them, and they're like the seven, seven dwarves. Why are there seven of them? Well, they, and they they did. So I think what I think was so, so good about them was that they they moved as this herd, this unit, where they kind of there was this sort of body of like. Of like tumbling old ladies uh, kind of all commenting like little sounds and stuff but then you also had each one was quite well carved out distinct. in their own right yeah uh, very individual they, very distinct yeah and there's one uh, there's one shot where they kind of all walk across frame and you get each of them one by one and again i think this kind of if they are it's seven there's sort of seven dwarves each one has their own little character um and yeah i think yeah the animation is just phenomenal like it's that again that first scene I think it's a kind of mixed frame rate, so you have him moving fast and then the rest moving slow. Uh, the, all these other characters moving slowly. Um, the other scene that really stuck out for me from an animation, kind of not just an animation perspective, but just from like a filmmaking movement perspective, is when the heron uh, first kind of... I don't, he doesn't reveal his true form, but when he's saying... Um, join us or what, what, what does he say you're, you're being summoned your, your presence is requested your presence is requested and then all these fish kind of join in with the uh, this yeah. ensemble yeah. and then the frogs the frogs up. start crawling up yeah that's it, a yeah it's quite a hor horrific moment really yeah. Yeah. animation definitely for me one of the best bits was right near the end when the whole when the parakeet king like slices the stones and the whole world starts kind of caving in on itself. Unraveling. Unraveling. And it's almost like, it reminds me a lot of like a Satoshi Kon film. Mm. Yeah. With like mm. this, these like whole worlds and different, yeah, these different worlds all collapsing in on themselves and just breaking down. And it's like the fabric of reality, like just breaking. That is really worth a highlight, Theo. That is, that's Satoshi Kon 
um, his sort of body of work, particularly paprika. Like you yeah. see a lot of that in um, in the boy and the heron. I think. Yeah. Nice. Just so much movement. So much. It's just like move, just so much movement in the frame. And the the other thing I I also have noticed is like often in the background I feel like there's there's so often in animation site and I guess this is like a budgeting thing though like you just have what's happening in the foreground they might blur out what's going on in the background or there might not be, be much going on it be like a static image a static image or but the like these like perfect like be- both like beautifully crafted like painted like uh, background plates and then also just like little details like little stories going on little little de- uh, little things that you wouldn't usually notice um I'm quite looking forward to a second watch. I feel, mm. I feel like there's a lot What to about do. that scene where, I think it was in the delivery room, this is, again, in the surreal world where he meets... Um, Natsuko. Natsuko, and she is um, covered... I can't remember, is she covered in bandages or yeah, paper? Yeah, like paper. But then paper the paper sort of rises up and covers Mahito. It's, again, a spirited away, spirited away reference is, there with yeah. paper and... Uh, and that was fantastically um, sort of articulated. What did you guys think was because remember Natsuko initially tells him to like leave her alone and that she'll never leave the room. What did you guys think about that and why? What yeah? Why did she suddenly um, show so much anger against Mahito? Why did she show anger towards him? Well, I think yeah. again, I mean, a lot of this film is about um, his sort of bereavement his loss of his mother and his anger at that but then having to accept that loss is part of life Mm -hmm. and having to adjust to having a new mother and you know accepting her and she was in a sense saying you know i will not accept you until you accept me Mm -hmm. i think that's something that we've maybe slightly missed is uh i i thought one of the big themes in the film was uh, a theme of growth and like, uh, I think the original name of the film in, ja- uh, in the Japanese release was How Do You Live? Um, and Mahito begins the film as quite, he's very closed, um, quite like unsympathetic in a way. And I think one of the things I struggled with at the beginning of the film was to actually like understand this character because he's so closed off from the world. Um, and I think part of the, that whole journey within the film is him learning to, that he, that, to grow like growth requires sacrifice and growth requires change um and that's like a fundamental part of life if you want to if you want if if you want to change you have to be able to push something away or like leave something behind mm. um i think that's a, quite a big thing a big part of miyazaki's filmography in general like spirited away again it's like learning to you know uh chihiro is begins as a child and she has to kind of learn to to grow, to develop and grow and sort of push aside some of the some of the some of the comforts of being a child. I think what makes it so um, have so much carry so much weight and gravity in this film is the whole plotline with if so he's choosing to ignore his new mother or his aunt as his new mother and if he doesn't go into this tower to um, bring Natsuko out, he would end up losing his quote-unquote mother again which i think really adds to the emotional weight of the story um Mm. but i also do think grief is such a big part so like at the in the opening so when he goes into the when they move out to the countryside and you have the heron repeatedly trying to um attract his attention and pester him and he's just 
just tried to shut the heron out. I think that's a very good like metaphor for uh, his experience with grief and how he's just trying to shut out the memories of his mother yeah. um, mm. until he eventually finally starts to accept the heron and follow the heron into the tower. I think there's we've gone through quite a few different themes there <laughs> and I want to try and bring them all, all roughly together and hopefully it leads to my grand unifying theory because I know we've only got through to Theo so far. But we've mentioned, so we started off with talking about the the, the birth chamber and why does um, Maito's mother slash aunt, because remember at this point, she's operating in this fantasy space where at one point she's the, she's the aunt that's gone into the tower, but also we know that she is representing his mother. She's giving birth to a child, which is both originally he thinks his his sibling in the real world a younger sibling but actually it turns out it's him right um so i think what's interesting is tied into his birth and his mother having a child is of course also her own death so at the beginning of the film we see him running into the fire to to save his mom but obviously she's dead so i think part of the reason why i, why I would suggest she's rejecting mahito is also a rejection of her own of her own death and her own mortality and again, we see her accepting that later on when she returns back to the world and says, I don't mind, I'm not scared of fire because fire is this kind of cleansing and rebirthing um, force. And I think to, to go back to what you were saying about growth, I think I would personally in this film, part of my my kind of way of looking at it would be to see it as a process of rebirth as opposed to growth or, or sort of growth through rebirth. So you enter this world, you enter this liminal space as a kind of rite of passage as as a young person and you kind of come out reborn as a man or as a new person or as a as a child or a predecessor um so i think that's why i think part of this film is about confronting death and accepting that in out of life going back to the warawaras comes death so even though people are dying this this kind of cycle of of, of individuals is continuing i think particularly interesting um, the the birthing chamber is quite literally a tomb because you see that you know when he visits the graveyard with the herons and there's that kind of big yeah. stone tomb yeah. it's the same kind of structure that you'll see in the birthing chamber sort of above the mother as she's lying there I've got an interesting so on that tomb door it says in Japanese those who seek my knowledge must pay with their lives yeah so again yeah. that's like that kind of like going going down into the this world finding knowledge death and then coming out on the other side with a kind of mm. a symbolic rebirth if you like yeah you must kill a part of yourself in a way yeah mm. i mean i like that i yeah it may, that makes sense to me and it's interesting because we often see um miyazaki's films as you're know, having this well, very japanese understandably sensibility um the title of the film in japan is how do you live and obviously it's called boy and the heron over here and i think that says something about well i, I guess it does say something about marketing but it makes me think of kurosawa's work particularly his film ikuru um which again translates as to live again a meditative film about coming to terms with death but i think there is a parallel with a very English artist here. Uh, I think an alternative title for the film could have been Songs of Innocence and Experience, because I think that is the process that um, um, Mahito goes through with this change of his life circumstances leading him to grow, um, but also to come to terms with the fact that life isn't going to be perfect. 
his mother isn't always going to be there. Um, he will have to cope with loss and with war. Um, and William Blake was the author of Songs and in Innocence and Experience. He was this um, very English um, artist, a great visionary artist, which again touches on your points, Nathan, about the detail of the animation. Uh, and I think there's a clear link between him and his work and um, Miyazaki, often seen as, if you like, a crazed artist, but mm -hmm. saying something really important, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, just to touch upon your point, Callum, on rebirth and death, I'll first, let me first just go back to my unifying theory um, about, because I, I kind of brought in the producer saying, um, that Mi uh, Miyazaki representing Mahi uh, Maito and the great uncle representing um, Taka Takahata. Takahata yeah. um, but I didn't really explain, I didn't really flesh that out. So I guess the idea would be that Iseo Takahata is this kind of creator of Ghibli. He is this master of the art. He built it all. This is his world that he's built up. And he found Miyazaki, uh, he found Miyazaki recognises talent and kind of developed that. And that's the old, that's the great um, uncle finding uh, Mahito and trying to like develop his, uh, trying to kind of cultivate his own um, skills and get him to replace the old man uh, because he's no longer can run this great world. Uh, and then the heron being the other producer who's kind of who starts off mocking uh, Mahito but then eventually becomes kind of his main motivator and the person that guides him to the tower and to Natsuki and eventually to the great old man and I was just going to say that in terms of birth and death rebirth and death you have those tower stones that the old man's built um, and they have to die and uh, Mahito, he doesn't want to continue building and creating this perfect harm harmonious world with the stones of the great uncle. But then he does still take out one of the stones and that's kind of like the death of um, Iseo Takahata's world, the death of his world. He also specifically says one line, he's like, "These some of these stones look and feel like tombstones, which mm. I thought was an interesting... Yeah. Yeah. And then Mah Mahito or Miyazaki takes this, takes the creativity, takes the skills he's developed um, from Takahata to start building his own world, which is the Miyazaki films we know and love. Mm. So that would be my unifying theory. Interesting. Does anyone want to posit that theirs? Um, I don't think I have a grand unifying theory. I, I, I mean, I haven't. I, I mean, I haven't sat down and sort of weaved together maybe quite as intricate a, a sort of web as Theo. Um, but I, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, I don't think there needs to be a grand unifying theory. And sure. I, I, I don't think many artists sits down and begins a, writing a film. I don't think Miyazaki would have sat down and been like, right, I'm going to make this film about this. I'm going to make this film about you know, th this is going to be the central theme and then I'm going to work down from that. I think most artists, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak for, for the man, but I think often it kind of comes from, from a more kind of ground up perspective and, mm. you know, you, you have lots of different ideas and you kind of bring those together and then, you know, mm. something that as, as an audience and we can take from that what we want and 
you know, once Miyazaki puts that out into the world, that's for us to kind of mm. interpret what we mm. want from it. So I think going back to what I think Theo said this earlier, I mean, it, it was based or inspired by this book, um, which actually features in the film, uh, asking the question, the title of the book, How Do You Live? And I think when Miyazaki was asked about that title, he said, I am making this movie because I do not have the answer. Mm. Yeah. Really? And I think the, the, the book, the title is, is Knit, but other than that, it's completely it's, a totally different story. It's based on a book, but he, Miyazaki did read that book when mm. he was a child, um, which again kind of ties into the whole autobiographical um, theory. I mean, I, I don't think we have to call it a theory at this point. It's pretty, it's pretty cut, cut and dry that this is somewhat of an autobiographical work. Mm. Um, I guess would do you guys think it's like a pessimistic or like an optimistic view on outlook on on his legacy on him you know do you, do you think Miyazaki making this film is just exploring those ideas do you think there's a particular uh, outlook in terms of whether it's I don't know I, I think I've always when I've watched Miyazaki's films in the past I've as much as I think they're often a celebration of the kind of beauty and the kind of beauty of life I think sometimes they can actually be quite pessimistic about humanity and I think Miyazaki is a uh, Miyazaki has always, has always been quite outwardly uh, damning of a lot of a lot of aspects of humanity like war and you know malice is, is put in this film um, I don't know I don't know watching I think in Boy and the Heron I don't know whether that, that there's any conclusion there, whether he takes a kind of a, a stance. I would say, I mean, it's a cop-out answer, but I think it's pessimistically optimistic. So it's like there's this, there's this, there's an, ex, the, the film is exposing a dark underbelly of these kind of stories and narratives. Um, but it is through, it is through kind of the confronting with the darkness, the confrontation with the father, the confrontation with the malice that you're able to come out on the other side having had that rebirthing experience having having sort of been uh what do you, what do you call it baptized through fire and it's it's through that kind of darkness that you're able to kind of continue and progress the the human story if you like so that would be my take on it i think yeah, on that i think there's something that i would like to sort of attach which is this notion of this children's story in the fairy tale mm. which to me is is clearly here as an undercurrent and something that we've seen again in um his previous work so spirited away is kind of the perhaps the most obvious and most well-known comparison for this film where you have a young person who goes into this world or sort of threshold liminal world um and it sort of has this interaction with various spirits entities characters um I, th I think the parallels to Alice in Wonderland we've mentioned Wizard of Oz as well are quite I would even say explicit there's that line about the smoking caterpillar that one of the uh, grandmother um, ladies says at the beginning when there's the discussion of tobacco and smoking leaves um, I think um, his mother when he goes into the world and encounters his young mother she's sort of got this like little um, girl's frock on which has although it's red it has that kind of Alice in Wonderland type vibe to it and I think obviously we're talking about a Japanese film. I'm sure there are sort of Japanese folkloric elements that someone more qualified than us would be able to interpret. But I think it's well understood that Miyazaki is also kind of engaging with Western ideas of folklore and fairy tale. And some of these stories always kind of play a big part. 
Um, and interestingly, um, I think fairy tales are but like what why fairy tales what do, what do they mean what's the what's the importance of them and i think for me it ties into this notion of rebirth the idea so um little red riding hood for example she gets swallowed by the wolf and then comes out the other side kind of reborn a lot of these fairy stories you go into the woods to the witch's hut and you come out the other side i think that plays an important part into the overarching theme which for me obviously having seen the film the shining um the day before we watched this was also a kind of key um interpretive lens through which to view this film another film that is infused with fairy stories you've got um jack nicholson playing the big bad wolf and making explicit references to fairy tales throughout the breadcrumbs around the hotel in this liminal space i think there's a clear there's a clear and again i'm not saying that these Miyazaki watched The Shining and thought, right, time to bang out a, a, an animated version. But which I is think, what which is what you would advise him to do. Yeah, I mean, he should have done that. <laughs> but I think there's I think both of both Stanley Kubrick and Miyazaki are looking at the fairy tale as this kind of man, way through which humanity kind of processes the trauma of rebirth and death and a new life and the cycle of life that is fundamentally traumatic but necessary um, for the human experience. Mm. Um, and so I might be fleshing that out in an article later on this year um, so look out for that listeners if you're interested to hear more right. I mean I, I do think Nathan, that is an interesting question about whether um, Miyazaki is being optimistic or pessimistic if you like in his world view I mean he certainly could be seen if we're talking about him as the great uncle at the end you know um, he the great uncle is withdrawn from the world. He's withdrawn from humanity. He's a misanthrope. He doesn't like people. But I think that Miyazaki is criticising that, that view and saying that you have to embrace humanity with all of its flaws. It's a quite a humanistic outlook, I think. And as Callum was saying, I mean, there are lots of allusions to other films, The Wizard of Oz. Um, I mean, when I saw the great uncle that's the first thing i thought of was the wizard of oz and sort of dorothy pulling away the curtain and there he was behind mm. it and it does bring to mind this sort of mix of the good and bad i mean there's that line from the wizard of oz where dorothy says um you know i think you are a very bad man and he says oh no i'm a really very good man i'm just a very bad wizard mm. yeah yeah it wasn't to another podcast that we listen to quite a lot. Shout out to the boys. Yeah, shout yeah. out to Very Bad Wizards, I think. Wasn't that Get one of on. the um, criticisms you had of the film, Nathan? The um, the relationship between the boy and the great uncle, you didn't think there was enough... Didn't you say something about there oh. not being enough um, Oh, my criticism. Yeah. No, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess it's probably actually worth going into this because I did say at the beginning that I thought the film was flawed. I've been going through this discussion and definitely the days following the film, it's grown in my mind. And I think uh, the fact that we've been, have, been able to have this such a lengthy and like in-depth conversation about it means that it, that it really is layered and, and quite like deep in that sense. Um, I, I guess, I think my main gripe with it was that I felt this, it was actually to do with the pacing. I think the second half, which was the kind of the period of the film in which they spent in this kind of fantasy world, uh, there was a point where, you know, the, the, when they first went in, it was kind of paced quite nice and slow. 
and we had those that kind of moment where he developed that, the relationship with the lady who he uh, later finds out is the uh, old one of the old ladies. Um, but then I thought just the sort of last quarter of the film just felt a little bit rushed. It felt like we were trying to get to the end, trying to get to that conclusion a little bit too quickly. And again, I understand that the whole idea was that they were sort of tumbling through this surreal world, like we were meeting all these strange characters. And I, I understand that. And, I, and I, I think that could work. I just thought we just needed a bit more time. I just needed a little bit more time for that, for that especially the sort of last few scenes. It felt like they were just a little bit pigeonholed in. Mm. And I don't know if that was like a budgeting issue, like, uh, like, or it was just written like that. But it felt like we were just we were just we just sped run through those last couple of scenes and and I didn't quite get enough time to digest it and like sit on it. Oh, in, in, in it's as interesting. Much as I would like you, to. It's interesting you talked about the old man, the great uncle, and Maito and how there wasn't enough time to really develop a relationship between the two. Uh, I remember you saying that it was all a bit too quick. Um, so I actually read that the story was actually intended, initially it was going to focus more heavily on the relationship between Mahito and the, and the great uncle. Mm. Uh, again, in my interpretation, which would be Miyazaki himself and the producer Takahata. But then after Takahata's death, while they were making the film, they shifted the direction of the film to mm. focus more on uh, Mahito's relationship with the heron. Um, because... Miyazaki can, uh, I guess he just couldn't face making this film, talking in great detail about the relationship between the great uncle and Maito himself. Mm. Uh, it's an explanation, but it, it, my, my, I guess my point about the pacing still stand, right? Yeah, like, no, that's not, like, but that's a, yeah, that's just why perhaps... That's an explanation this, yeah. rather than a adjustment. Adjusting, yeah. Because exactly. I, I think I agree with you. I think the ending... Although I actually liked the quite blunt ending once they got out of the world, like there was this one line, it felt like the end of a kind mm. of novel that people get annoyed and were like, what? It was like, and then we went back, and then we went back to Tokyo and then it just ended and it was like him shutting the door on the room and mm. taking the suitcase. I thought that was really good, but I agree. There was like that, that very, very last few scenes before that where I feel like they could have fleshed it out more. I think the pacing issues make sense as well when you consider the timing so i think it was obviously i think they planned to release it around the time of the summer olympics in 2020 and then obviously you had the pandemic you had the death of takahata there are all these different components which i think make make sense for why the film kind of feels disjointed but, yeah it, it took 10 years to make i think really yeah, yeah seven years. Well, at least it, it was announced years, yeah. it was actually announced 10 years ago so production probably started before that so I did, and, and as you said, I think COVID and the Olympics probably like did play a part in that. Yeah. And I, I for me, like, um, I actually think the film should have been longer. Yeah. Um, which is obviously it was two hours, but I think we could like again like the even the so the parakeets. I feel like even the parakeet scene, it felt like we rush, we kind of rushed through through it. We could have had a mm. maybe a longer, more uh, nuanced exploration of what you know what that kind of parakeet society within that world. Yeah. I just feel like we kind of jumped to that. We jumped to uh, another point. We jumped to the door scene, and then we were at the uncle, and then we were we were done, and that was yeah, it. Yeah, because I I agree somewhat. I think that could that bit could have been extended a bit because one of the key like shifts in the film for me was when Maito goes through this kind of character development at first when he approaches the great uncle and he says these stones are full of malice, mm. and then he leaves and he comes back and says. 
I'm full of malice. And that seems like quite a big, or I I have, the reason he can't take over is because he's, he's full of malice because he hit himself in the head, do you remember? He says yeah. that. With, malice. With, with a stone. With, with a stone. Malice. Yeah. But there malice. seems that seems to be quite a big shift or car- like shift there, but there's not actually that much time between those two scenes. Yes. I, you need that, that you need that like change that change in pacing to accommodate that like that kind of change in emotion and i feel like sometimes if you just have that kind of single tone like two beat you know two beat structure without a kind of interim of like either you know something else going on then you don't have time to actually digest it and it feels a little bit forced and the kind of well i'm always happy to see more of miyazaki's films but i didn't see that as an issue the pacing mm. i mean for me that Set, particularly the second half, the second hour in this surreal world. Nathan, I think you put it really well when you talked about him sort of tumbling through these scenes, and which touches on Callum's point about the Alice in Wonderland feel. And in that world, you've got not only the shifts in, in space, you also, I think, have shifts in time. So at times, things seem to take their time. At other times, they seem to be speeded up, which fit for me with the rhythms of the film. So... And certainly, having seen it the second time, um, yeah, it, it felt like the right time for the well, film. Well, it seems like we completely lose time, like time stands still in the tower because, well, for Mahito, for Mahito to meet his mother, so we know that his mother goes in um, at a young age. We know that the mother goes in at a young age, and then. She's still in the wor- She's still in the world when Mangito goes in, however long later. So it's almost like time is at a standstill inside the tower. Mm. Speaking of time, speaking <laughs> of time, yeah. I mean, I think we're probably reaching the end of our discussion. Um, but I think, yeah. I mean, you could you could really talk about this film all day. I I say I have to, I'm inclined to agree with Nathan. I think I'm I'm fingers crossed for uh, Amazon slash Netflix bidding war for the reboot in five years for a ten, <laughs> ten episode ten episode season what, li- li- live, live action, action. yeah live CGI. action version <laughs> directed by Peter Jackson yeah um, but yeah I mean Gilmero Del Toro I'll give that one a miss I think that was a that was a very good discussion I think we got a few good unifying theories in there I think we're all largely agreed that it was an excellent film um, obviously referencing The Shining obviously autobiographical obviously. <laughs> um, we will, I'm sure we'll be doing some follow up some listener engagement so please like comment if you've got any grievances with the film that you want to levy or any grievances with our takes please get in touch um, before we go does anyone have any final words they want to add any last theories any last notes that they didn't get to say Malice in Wonderland, that's a good little <laughs> one line that you could add in the oh, yeah, yeah. in the show notes. Thank you for thank you for tuning in. Please go and watch The Boy and the Heron I in cinemas now. One line to really sum up the film would be spent all night the great uncle when he says, You can follow in my footsteps and try to control everything until the bitter end, or accept that life is chaos and you can only control some things, so try to enjoy what you can. Wow. That's a bit of Thank you, Theo. Thank you, Theo. Uh, thank you, everyone. <laughs> thank you, listeners. There's no simple answer to that Goodbye. question. Watch The Shining.